Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. I'm Tando, and I, I'm doing a BA degree. Language is important because it's a way in which we all communicate. Um, I haven't really had a tough time here, mostly because I speak English with my friends and acquaintances and all, so it's really not a problem for me. But I've witnessed a lot of people having problems with language, for example, English. Many uh, of the students come from rural areas and they aren't really familiar with English. They're so used to being taught in their languages. As an African, I know how to speak Zulu. I know how I've been taught to speak English. And I feel like white people should also learn our languages. So everyone should be taught in the language they're comfortable in. In today's episode, we think about multilingualism and the role of language in higher education. In a multilingual country and society like South Africa, where many students speak more than one language, it seems curious that English is still considered a kind of default natural language for learning in higher education. So to think about and challenge these ideas, we today speak to Dr. Nomalanga Mkize, who is a lecturer in the History Department at Rhodes University. She's been involved with education activism for several years and also writes African language children's books. Welcome to today's guest, Nomalanga Mkize, who is a lecturer at the university currently known as Rhodes. Thank you so much for joining us, Nomalanga. Hi, thank you. Today, we want to talk with you not only about your research, but also about your very important views on the role of language in higher education in South Africa. So could you give us a sense of what role language, and especially indigenous languages, play in your own teaching and your own research as a historian? Well, any humanities scholar or student doesn't really have the ability to get around the question of language because all we do is live in the world of language, okay? I mean, historically, the humanities arise pretty much from the study of meaning, interpretation, whether it's people studying ancient Greek, ancient Persian, or whatever. A lot of the humanities tradition is about coming to grips with what is the meaning of a word in context and in its time, and what is the meaning of it today in relation to what it meant in the past. So it's not a particularly new thing to, to emphasize the need to come to grips with language when dealing with anything in the university. It's foundational. I know that because of the contemporary issues in South Africa around access to university and equitable sort of institutional access in, in certain universities, 
that it seems like the debate has become more pronounced, but it's actually a debate that will never go away in the humanities. Absolutely. And I know that you have written about the disruptive and very productive role that code switching, speaking in different languages can have in the classroom. Can you tell us a bit more about your perspectives on that? First of all, let me just say, the language issue is not an absolute issue. It's a relative issue. It doesn't mean the same thing in every single context. It only means what it means in a specific kind of situation based on the history of the use of language in that context. So when you are dealing with the issue of language, it really is about what the need is in that particular institution for that particular time based on the history of the institution and the history of scholarship in your particular field or the debates that you are looking at. I've said to people, look, you can't make the language issue at University of Pretoria or Stellenbosch University equivalent to, say, at, I don't know, University of Zululand, because the issues are somewhat different. In these former white Afrikaans universities, language was a matter of folks' ideology and white supremacy and exclusion. Whereas in other universities, these languages were sort of run of the mill. Well, this is what we do. We've been designated this language. We kind of use it, but not to the exclusion of others. I wish South Africans would employ like a a situational intelligence about the language question and come to grips with it. Because, I mean, we have a lot of languages in this country and they have their own rich histories and troubled histories and so on. So you have to be able to look at things in context. So... For example, if you go up to Limpopo, it might be quite a divisive thing if a lecturer used, say, Shitsonga in one class as opposed to Sibedi or something. It might not be conducive for certain South African spaces to do that. It might be better then to know that if I'm going to teach in a certain part of the country, I need to start coming to groups with two African languages or nothing at all, or just stick to English. Whereas here at Rhodes, I knew and I know that there's a history at Rhodes University of English dominance that is based on the idea that English is not just universally good for everyone, but that it's even better than all languages. You know, this misconception that English and intelligence are the same thing. And there's a history of the way the people of this area were conquered actually over 200 years ago. And there's a history of how Rhodes University situates itself in Grahamstown, like it's this island of privilege that's outside of the poverty of the majority of Grahamstown. So I know that when I walk into a classroom in Grahamstown and I use Isikosa, it does something to the power balance in Rhodes University based Mm -hmm. on the history. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Can you tell us more about your experience in the classroom? Because I believe there was quite a, for some students, challenging moment where you were teaching a class on history, right? And you chose to deliver some of the material in Isikosa. And it caused a little bit of a social media firestorm. And you've written very thoughtfully about it and about how important it is to bring other languages into the educational project. I've got two responses to this. The first part of the response is that this is a social media phenomenon, the response to the lecture. Three years ago, I did the exact same thing in the same first-year classroom with the same sort of demographic, 
And pretty much for whatever reason, these students didn't either didn't notice or they just thought, ah, whatever, or, you know, they just sort of moved on with life, didn't make it a Facebook issue or, you know, I can always see there's irritation by some students in the class and they sort of just think, ah, we'll get over it. It's one of those lecturers, uh, you know. But I don't know what happened in, in 2015. I really, to this day, I, I don't understand. I don't like to make a big fuss about it because I don't think it should be a point of discussion. I think it was half a social media spectacle more than it was also what happened in the classroom. Anyway, there was a, a response in the classroom. What happened was I was discussing a particular historical question around uh, King Hinza uh, and his assassination by the British in the Eastern Cape in the 1830s. And that's a very that's an ongoing pain for black South Africans. It was an ongoing pain Throughout the struggle, the issue of the murder of Hinzai has been one of the big issues of colonialism in South Africa. Now, because it has it has always carried through time, this this murder of Hinzai is one of the wounds of colonialism. It's always brought up in debates. And so it has a contemporary resonance. So a student asked me, so it was clearly a student from the Eastern Cape, because the, this story is always important to people. So I opted to answer him in Isikosa because he would understand it because it was meaningful to that person. And some of the things I wanted to say, I could only really at first say them by just saying them in Kosa and then, or in Gunil rather. I mean, I'm, I'm not a first language Kosa speaker. My Kosa is not that great, actually, ironically. I try to speak Isikosa, but not very well. But I can mix it with Zulu here and there. So I was explaining to the student and making it as colorful as I could because I could see that he could, he could, it was all about the theory of history. And so it was, he was now making a connection between this story of the murder of Hinza and what I'm teaching here about what is the nature of history, memory, and so on. So of course I was going to explain it in the most immediate language accessible to him. And the majority of the people in the class, actually, by the way, but also in the dominant language of the Eastern Cape and given the fact that it was about Eastern Cape history. And then I would translate every now and again in between. But naturally what happens is, you know, one or two of the kids will get very anxious that you're not addressing them. And I actually got quite annoyed because I'm just like, this is university. If you don't understand what you need to do is maybe just hang ten a bit and see if it's coming back to you, if the lecturer will come back to you, okay? And see if she's also just playing a bit of a game, because it's also a bit of a game for me, to try and get them to see that if you don't understand that history can come in multiple languages, you might not be able to be a historian. Mm. Yeah, I could sense discomfort, and so I just said, I can't address people who don't understand that South Africans speak multiple languages. And then there was a big uproar in the classroom, and the uproar was uh, was somehow divided between those who were like, yeah, 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 you know, and those who were like, oh, yeah, <laughs> became one of those things. <laughs> and I just ignored it because I'm like, these are first years. It's the first two weeks of lectures. Like, they'll get over it. I really just ignored it. In fact, it was not even the first two weeks. It must have been the first week of lectures. Mm -hmm. I literally ignored it because I know that all first years experience discomfort in the first week of lectures. And it's what lecturers like to do. You like to make them feel a bit uncomfortable so they can see that, oh, I'm at varsity. And so part of the teaching trick is to make them uncomfortable 
like physically and then they can see that oh my goodness I have to do some extra work Mm. and that was where I thought it would end unfortunately because of social media people took it to dining halls and so on it became a big thing I really just didn't know how to respond until I felt I shouldn't have had to respond honestly I only decided to respond after it went on social media, was going on WhatsApp, it became this big thing, there's not a national issue, whether there was exclusion about other people. I was like, what? It's really remarkable. Please. And then, you know, people can think that one is trying to be self-deprecating. It's not. If you are a teacher, anybody who's a teacher will know you play tricks on students. Anybody who stands up, especially first-year students, they're your best they're like the new ones. You put them there, you scare them a bit, you jolt them here, you tell them, whoa, maybe there's no God. Ah! You know, you tell them um, all kinds of things just to jolt them out of what they just came from called, you know, high school. Anyway, so... I think what's remarkable about it is that you were using an indigenous language that the majority of students in the room would have understood in the context of a part of the country where that language is endemic, right? And that would seem like a perfectly natural thing to do in any university classroom anywhere else in the world. Yet in South Africa, it became incredibly politicized. And I think, you know, there's something obviously going on about the politics of language itself in higher education. And like you were saying, this assumption that English is the only viable mode of learning at this level and I think that's a really problematic assumption well I mean I think to myself okay let's say I was at the University of Venda and let's assume that I was a first year and because I don't speak to Venda so let's just assume I was there and I arrived and let's give some good intentions to the lecturer they're not a tribalist ethno you know centricist or anything they really are doing what I'm doing. And I walk into the class and the lecturer uses some vendor for about five minutes and some English here and there. After the class, I'd be like, hey, guys, did you understand that? Please quickly help me translate. And then I'd start making a glossary there of vendor to vendor words. I must remember these words. They come up in class again. Mm. That is what I would think a university student would instinctively want to do, which is let me try and unlock this puzzle that is being put in front of me. Mm. Not let me go and moan about the fact that I feel uncomfortable in my first week of lectures. You're meant to feel uncomfortable. Do you think your students learned from this experience? Yeah, there's a lot of learning that happened. And maybe this leads to the second part of the answer. People think it was mostly white students or or singularly white students who didn't like this. It wasn't just white students. It was a whole range of students who didn't like it. I'm aware of that because Rhodes University is a particular kind of institution with a certain history of kind of a privileging kind of a space. It gives any student who goes there, including myself, because I went to Rhodes, it gives you the impression that when I'm here, I'm part of a privileged elite and we should be treated very nicely and we should be treated because we paid so much to be here. You know, that whole sort of sense of, of education somewhat also being a little bit commodified. And so part of it, for me, it was including the black privileged student. And by privilege, I don't mean that they are class well off like the white students necessarily or whatever. What I mean is privileged by the fact that you've arrived at Rhodes University and you are now being cocooned. So I really felt that I needed to break that for those black students as well 
who do not know that it is okay for your university to strip itself of its whiteness. Do you know what I mean? Who come to Rhodes precisely to buy into the whiteness. I don't want to teach that kind of black student from first year to third year and they come to Rhodes believing that they are buying into this and they leave believing that they bought into it and the certificate is a stamp of white approval. The second issue here has to do with what I think is the problem of assimilation in education. A certain segment of South Africans, middle class, black colored, Indian as well, South Africans accept. But when I say assimilation, it's not even about accent. It's about a way of denying African contributions in pedagogy, whether it's by language. So kids coming out of Model C schools and coming to Rhodes and then believing that by being at Rhodes, Mona, they mustn't be challenged about their Model C education. You should be challenged. There is something wrong with the way we are assimilating the majority of our kids. So assimilation for me is something that needs to be really challenged and not because hybridity isn't a norm of life. It's about the fact that you still say to black kids that they can discard anything and not just black kids, white kids, all kids in South Africa should not believe that it is okay to discard the indigenous elements and believe that you can still be intellectually credible. You just can't be. You cannot be intellectually credible by discarding everything else that's around you for English and Anglo-Saxon norms and, uh, you know, we speak like this or, you know, we get sarcasm and wit and humor. No, no, it, it's just, it's, it's got to come to an end. And I know that our parents made these choices. They had to send us to these schools for various reasons and it's complicated. It's fine. We can go to these schools. But when you get to varsity Somebody needs to break that spell and say, we're breaking the assimilation spell. Now we're at an intellectual environment. You can learn anything from uh, French to Isitwazad to God knows Russian. I don't know. Mm. This is varsity. Your, Your notion of privilege that you learned in your assimilated school and you thought you were coming to an assimilated university, that ends. That ends in my first year classroom. So is your vision of a decolonized, transformed university, does that vision include a kind of multilingual approach to learning and to education and to intellectual work. What I try to say now is I I try to say a multi-idiomatic approach. Mm -hmm. Multi-idiomatic means that you don't have to be fluent 11, 12, 13 languages, no. Mm. But you should be able to access the idiomatic richness somehow. So even if I don't uh, speak Susutu fluently, I know that there are Susutu idioms about time that imply things like when the rocks were soft. That's long, long ago when the rocks were still soft. That comes from Susutu, Susutu idiom, right? I, I, I know it in English and I know it when Susutu people say it. I can't necessarily say it myself, but I know of the idiom. So idiom is the real area of richness and power for our intellectual purposes at the university. German is probably one of the most used languages in sociology because it derives from lots of German thinkers. So if you can't get to groups with Gemeinschaft or Gesellschaft, don't do sociology. But nobody says that. But what you say uh, is the cause and there's this and there's that. Hey, now you're being ethnolinguist. Now you're being tribalist. Now you're being... No, it's conceptual. It's idiomatic. It's using 
concepts derived from a particular language because that language expresses it quite richly. Uh, I mean, I'm not a language person, but you, you start translating concepts back into English and trying to retain the richness. I don't speak German fluently, but if you give me a German concept and you explain it in its Germanness, I will understand. And I will mm. also understand why English doesn't explain it well. I think that's a really powerful idea of multi-idiomatic thinking. And I can see how it would be really, really useful in various kinds of humanities and social sciences teaching. But what about outside of our area? What about in the sciences? You know, how can language help multi-idiomatic thinking or multilingual approaches help with learning in those areas, do you think? In the first instance, the division between the arts and the sciences is part of the problem that we live with. The problem is that false line that's been made in the university, probably the contemporary university, where you are taught that you are either on sort of mostly in the humanities or mostly in the natural sciences. It's a very, very limited way of looking at the university. I didn't grow up with the idea that there was such a bifurcation of, of knowledges. I understood the bifurcation of method, maybe. But I, you know, I did history, I did physics, I did mathematics. I actually took some advanced mathematics at some stage. I did, obviously, English, etc. I did French because it was mandatory. And we revolted because there was no Zulu. So then the school introduced this is Zulu. It was 94, 95. So it was like, hey, we took our rebellion, you know. Some of us ditched French for Isuzulu, which I regret now. I would have loved to do both. I think you make a really important point about how all knowledge is part of a continuum, that it's kind of a false separation, right, to separate sciences and humanities. I mean, my parents are medical doctors, and they're my best sort of example. My mother's very much a mathematically oriented person. I don't know how to describe what it feels like to live in a world where people can, where people who are very rooted indigenously and are trained indigenously. My father, at least part of his training was at the University of Zululand. People who are trained in very rooted ways, okay, and they become mathematicians and scientists based on training by other black teachers and so on. You know, science is a method, and it is a method, and it's as much as it's a discourse, and it's, a, it's got a cultural elements in it. Having grown up with two doctors, it's very difficult to explain the importance of having scientists who understand the local basis of their operation, who understand not just how to take something and splice it in a lab or whatever, but who understand where that something comes from and what it means to people and what its history is. Because this thing of separating science from society, it's very strange. It, it's just, it's not a thing. It's, it's not, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. All forms of science are socially situated. And the only way we can understand them and communicate them is through language. So like you say, we have to have multi-idiomatic ways of doing that. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck in ways of not communicating. And that's really regressive, I guess. And, and your scientists, I think, are less intelligent when all they can do is tell you what to do with a compound or whatever, but they can't tell you anything about anything. Well, what can they discover? A scientist who a contribution in many ways is one who can think outside of the box, who can think about human issues as well, who can think quite broadly, you know, who can make un unusual connections. I'm not trying to simplify, you know, complex fields of, of scientific endeavor, but... 
to me that things can't be separated. What we're addressing here is the type of human being who becomes the scientist. It's the type of knowledge producer who will become the lab person. That's what the humanities, uh, part of their contribution is, is what kind of a person or what kind of a scholar are you? It's not merely what can you do. Yes, I, th- I think you've, you've uh, expressed that really well. Can we go back for a second? You've reminisced a little bit about your experiences in school, and it's made me wonder about what is the role of primary and secondary education in preparing students for multilingual tertiary education? Because I mean, we can agree that it is an ideal that we need to be striving for, that students at university can learn and explore not only in English, but also in their mother tongues, preferably alongside and integrated with one another. But how should the, the basic primary secondary education system help also in terms of achieving that goal, in your opinion? One of the advantages I've had in life, I, I went to about seven different primary schools because of um, living in many different places and parts of, of Southern Africa. And so I, I have quite a good sense of the differences in, in education and how different forms of education affect you as a child. And I've been to every different kind of school under the sun, from rural school to private school, all different kinds, colored school, every, name one. I've seen different versions of schooling. And I'm quite grateful for that in some way, because it means that I could now, as an adult, make comparisons. But it's very important that primary education address a lot of these language questions, but also the just the orientation. So in Zimbabwe, even though the school I went to in Zimbabwe was not a Shona medium school, I remember the first day I arrived at school, I had just arrived in Zimbabwe. It must have been grade three, I think, standard one. The first day I remember, we just uh, walked through the door and we were told Shona test, just, just like, you know, we were given a test. It was neither here nor there. We just had to do a test. I just arrived from South Africa, so I didn't know what Shona was, so I did whatever I could. I then learned to sink or swim. I learned to write in Shona at the time, at that level, because that was what the school required of me. And the teachers just sort of helped you a bit here and there because you were not a first language speaker. The thing about this, my experience of that Zimbabwean system was, even when they taught in English, you didn't get the sense that they were teaching you how to be assimilated at the time. They were not teaching you anything but that English is a language. And you must just learn to read and write it properly and communicate. But the rest of the time, the school was pretty much bilingual, um, at least at the informal level. The thing about South Africa was the schools that I went to in South Africa became quite unequal over time. So rural school, I had to leave because the teachers had become poor quality in terms of their teaching of English, but they could teach the indigenous languages very well. But the rest of the teaching was really bad quality. So South Africa had inequalities in the system that were just completely out of kilter. You couldn't, uh, the South African education system really had problems, obviously because of the situation in the 90s. Anyway, so now of course they've tried to transform the education system, the basic education system. In fact, many of the problems just haven't gone away. You still walk into any sort of normal, whatever, township or rural school, and you still find the problems that I found in 1990, whatever, when I was in primary school. 
the teacher can, because they're fluent in their mother tongue, in, in the African language, they can do that fine. But the teaching of other subjects is done badly. That's really, I suppose, a legacy of Bantu education and the erosion of black schooling from the 70s. So it's really hard with South African educate, basic education to really pinpoint a lot of the problem because it's just so systemic. Having said all that, language is the basis for coherent learning and thinking, even if you're not at school. You see, education is not simply about the syllabus. It's about just learning a coherent way of being in the world and a coherent way of learning to read and write. And You don't have to learn everything by the syllabus to come out well. And so my thinking has been that what we should be doing is trying to support the basic education system by providing a lot more children's materials in African languages. And you yourself write children's books in Isizulu, right? Yeah, and it's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. We write books, but we don't actually publish books yet because publishers are difficult. What we do is we publish with a newspaper and we reach about a million readers a week. And I don't know how many thousands of kids we precisely reach, but I imagine that the readership of the newspaper is a million. So our stuff is going out to a lot of kids and a lot of feedback comes from parents who write to the newspaper asking for our books <laughs> and we say we've got the books but we just haven't had the money yet to print them although that's in the pipeline now could you tell us which newspaper the this material is available in so if anyone's listening and they want to check it out they can do so well if you live in guazulu natal you can check out the newspaper called a2 kzn that comes out every Thursday. I don't really talk about it a lot because it's not my project alone. So I don't want it to be identified with myself because of the... But you're collaborating. And yeah. But, involved, so... Yeah, but we get quite a bit of feedback from people in KZN and we've done quite a lot of reaching out to the audience to see how this thing it goes down very well. What it has taught me is that... You can provide materials for kids in African languages. Sometimes we make it bilingual, so sometimes we'll make it in English uh, and Zulu. And it's not because we particularly care about Zulu people or Zulu speakers. It's simply because there are avenues through mm -hmm. consumers of Zulu newspapers to channel our writing in that direction. We've done it with some with Isikosa, but it's very hard to find a sustainable way to produce weekly uh, materials in Isikosa. Yeah, because the Isizulu newspaper sector is really well developed, right? And really, it's well yeah. developed. It's it's actually purely uh, on that basis. And this, for me, it's about this is what I want to say about why when I get a first year student in the classroom, who lives in a world of English or comes to Rhodes so that they can continue living in a world of English. And I want to say to them, that's interesting. Whilst the world of English newspapers is dying and the majority of South Africans speak multiple languages and you want to train your mind in English, but you want to graduate one day and be somebody who people want to listen to, but you can only speak to people who care about English. It's just not sustainable. It's really not sustainable. It's not sustainable and it's also it blocks off avenues of, of, of creativity. If I had followed my education, my education would be like, okay, you speak English so well. <laughs> Keep writing. Now I've got to write stories like Roald Dahl. Mm. You know, now I've got, mm. you know, who would I be talking to? 
but now I speak to a million people every week because I bother to go and check out that I can actually write in Isuzulu. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. It's important for black South Africans to pay attention to where the discussion is happening and not get drawn into the, you know, our Twitter sphere too much because that gives you the impression that the English discussion is the most important discussion in the country. It's not. And it's, it's absolutely not. Um, what would you say to those of us who also, uh, thanks to the apartheid system of education, never had the opportunity to learn properly other South African languages when we were growing up and we're coming to it late as adults trying to learn and it's so hard to learn a language as a as a grown-up right because our brains are just different for people who are trying to learn Isimhasa, Isizulu, uh, Sesutu or you know any other language later in their life. There's two things about language one is it's about effort <laughs> okay it's not easy so there's no way around a language. Nobody can baby you through the hard work of breaking your head with a language. There's just no way around it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's a social thing. If you are going to continue in a white ghetto or in an English enclave ghetto of your Englishness, well, obviously you're not going to make any headway. So, so you can't learn. The two are inseparable, effort and, and social life. You can't learn an African language if your, your approach to black people is that they are, you know, token people in your life or whatever. It's just not going to happen. So that's just something that nobody can cure for you. You can either you know black people or you don't. <laughs> it's like that. I had to learn German when I was 17 for stuck in Germany for a couple of months. It's not Germans don't give you a choice about it. That's one thing. People don't give you a choice about something you wind up having to swim. So if you truly believe you don't have a choice then you will soon. I mean, the thing with white South Africans is they're funny men with this whole thing. They, I, You see, I, I let everyone else off the hook. I'll let all the other brown people, black people off the hook because they've also got language dispositions to deal with. And I'm not saying we shouldn't learn, you know, if you say if you're colored, you shouldn't learn. It's because the chances are you do know some something. Yeah, it's usually white South Africans who would really, really need to make extra, extra, extra effort because of the way they are secluded and privileged in their seclusion. And well, they think it's privilege in the social sense. It's a disprivilege, although it's an economic privilege to be secluded. It's effort. Think of it like if somebody said to you, go and learn, I don't know, Spanish. I tried to learn some Portuguese. It just didn't work. I had to first learn how to count and then I had to learn some songs when I picked up some capoeira, then the Portuguese started to make a bit more sense because I was now in a bit socially, you see, socially I was using Portuguese for songs and capoeira. So now I was, when you start to learn the history of capoeira, you now like, oh, this is what this means. Now the idiom. Mm, I think that's really good advice and, and very, a very kind of well-directed challenge because there's a lot of laziness around in terms of learning languages and it's absolutely important if any, like if, especially if white South Africans want to remain relevant, remain engaged and contribute to a society that they say they care about, they have to start learning the language. 
Well, they mustn't complain. They mustn't complain when nobody translates for them and doesn't and people are code switching and people don't complain. Everyone else puts up with English and puts up with other languages all the time. Just if you don't understand, then just don't complain. Ask somebody on the side when you walk away or something or send a note to pass a note to live with it. Just to wake up and, and be a normal person. Don't stop wanting everyone to make a way for you. People must stop having to have ways be made for them. Usually people make a way out of politeness and courtesy anyway. Just stop expecting extra, extra, you know, oh, shame, this, oh, how can we help them? Just make the effort, or if you don't, then, find, I don't know, do something for yourself. This is the world. Like, do something. If you go to Poland, nobody helps you. Nobody helps you in the world. Nobody's going to help you. So help yourself. <laughs> make a plan. The rest of us are making a plan, you know, make a plan. I get to Pretoria, nobody cares. Everyone's speaking in Susutu or Tswana or whatever. I suddenly I'm learning, I'm speaking, I'm trying. Nobody will speak to me in, in Zulu. It's fine. Nobody cares. I must get there and make a plan. Make a plan. You know, move one. Yeah, just move with it. Fantastic advice. And I'm really glad to have chatted to you. Any last words or any final thoughts that you want to share with us? You know, I've, uh, not, not that I know this person, but there's a, a person who's just put up a, a campaign on, on this Thunder Fund called Siafunda. And he's done a very beautiful book in Isuzulu, like ABCs with beautiful, like etchings, print, print type, uh, like whatever, very beautiful um, book, uh, very nicely graphic designed, whatever. I don't know what to say. Fine art design. I don't know. I'm not one of those people, but it's so beautiful. And he, so he's done this book. And so it's obviously his self kind of publishing it through the Thunder Fund Siafunda, um, it's called Siafunda. So if you look for Siafunda on Thunder Fund. And what drew me to that was the innovativeness, was the fact that he's retaining all this Zulu idiom or this African language idiom, but he's thinking of it aesthetically in a different way. That is what I think for uh, me is the po- are the possibilities of playing with idiom and language. It's, it's all the aesthetic possibilities. It's all the amazing things we can think in languages. It's all the isibayas and, and all the beautiful things that are on Mzansi magic. And it's all the creation that comes from language that we need intellectually that we should bring into our classrooms to the political space, the creative space. For me, language is about possibility. So it's not about retaining or conserving or going backwards. It's always about what it can do to open up new avenues of imagination. So I really like this guy's book. Um, and so he's trying to, to raise money to, to, to get the book, lots of the book published. And I imagine that lots of other people should try that. Instead of trying to approach African languages simply to sort of, oh, we want to retain our roots and our tradition. For me, it's not about that. It's about thinking afresh, new pictures in our heads, new stories, new new ways of writing ourselves. It's been a fantastic conversation, and I hope that anyone listening who doesn't yet know at least a few words of an indigenous South African language is inspired to go out there and make an effort to try and learn a little bit and to bring those ideas, those vocabularies, those experiences into their own teaching, whether it's in the social sciences, the humanities, engineering, or beyond. I go by the name of Pali Boy.
I'm studying B farm, like Bachelor of Pharmacy. First semester was like a hell to me because like uh, I was always crying, but not really, you know, but then I was always complaining about these things being new to me because um, where I'm coming from, none of those existed. So when I came here, I was finding very hard to adjust, but then I think now I'm a bit fine getting there. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAWU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asawu.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mahita Ikani. Research scheduling, editing and production was done by Balungi Lebenyane. Thanks to Nomalangam Kize, Tando and Paliboy for their time. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles.